The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. And if you need a Bible, there is a Bible in the chair in front of you underneath the chair. And you can uh, use that, and you would want to turn to page uh, 423. And uh, if the page numbers are kind of faded, just turn to the middle and a few pages over to the right, and you should be there. Psalm 14 is what we're reading. Uh, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There there they are in great terror for God, is there, is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. You may be seated. Thank you, Greg. We're going to invite uh, Brother Chance Newingham up to preach for us today. Uh, Many of you all know Pastor John has started his sabbatical, and uh, he will return, Lord willing, at the beginning of August. So you guys will kind of have a revolving door of preachers over the next next few months, all right? So we are working our way through a few uh, chapters in the book of Psalms. You can come on up if you want to. And uh, Chance is going to be preaching for us today from Psalm 14. I am deeply thankful for this, brother. I am thankful that the Lord led you and your family to partner with us here. This man is talented in many, many areas, from leather worker to, like, ministry manager to zookeeper and all kinds of stuff. Uh, Very, very talented guy. He's one of our community group leaders, also going through our uh, residency program as well here at Delta, and I'm excited to hear what the Lord has laid on his heart from Psalm 14. Can I pray for you, brother? All right. God, I thank you for my brother Chance. I thank you for saving him. Thank you for calling him out of darkness into your glorious light. I thank you for putting in him a desire to preach and teach your word. I thank you for the impact that he is having, not only in this church family, but in his community. I thank you for how he is using the gifts that you have given him to be a blessing to others. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would equip him, empower him, give him clear thoughts, clear words, and may you glorify yourself through the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brady. Uh, A a clarification, what he means by zookeeper is my four boys. Um, If you guys know know them, you you know what I'm talking about. So, If you know anything more about my family, one thing that you probably know is that my wife shares memes every Saturday morning. 
Do we have any faithful viewers out there? Yep, okay, a few. So uh, it's, it's no joke, on multiple occasions, I've been stopped in public, um, like at Dollar General or Casey's gas station, and, and the conversation goes like this. They say, are you Chance? And I'm like, yeah, and they say, are you married to Ginger, the one who shares the memes every week? These are like people that I don't know, okay? One gal actually stopped me in Casey's and she said, are you Chance? And I'm like, yeah, that's me. And she said, you are married to the meme queen of Menard County. <laughs> it's, it's just Ginger's thing, right? She finds memes throughout the week and then she posts them on her Facebook account on Saturday mornings and, and people look, look forward to it. So if Ginger is the meme queen of Menard County, then that makes me the Facebook Reels king of Menard County, okay? The only difference is I don't share what I find throughout the week with the masses. I just share them with my boys. It's a, it's a pretty common occurrence, maybe once or twice a week, the boys will come to me and they'll say, can we watch funny videos tonight? That's what they refer to as the, the Facebook Reels. And so we'll sit down as a family, sometimes for 20 minutes, 30 minutes longer, because I've been doing research all week, right, finding these videos and sending them to, to Ginger. Well, a few weeks ago, I watched a video that I think connects pretty well to Psalm 14. I'm not, I'm not going to show it to you, not the right, the right context for that, but I do want to describe it to you. So it starts with this adorable little boy. He's probably two or three years old, and he's eating a raw onion. Okay, a big, big white raw onion, just chomping down on it. He thinks it's an apple. He's telling himself that, that it's an apple, but it's actually an onion. He's stubborn, though. He's so stubborn that he will not admit that his mother is right, because you can hear her talking to him in the background. She's like, buddy, that's not an apple. That, that's an onion. He's so stubborn, he will not admit that she is right and that he is wrong, and he just chomps on. I mean, he's got tears rolling down his face. You can hear him, like, coughing a little bit as he's trying to swallow each bite. He doesn't care, though. He will not admit his mistake. That's Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is about a fool. A fool is somebody who knows what is right, rejects what is right, and then clings tightly to what is wrong. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 14 if you haven't already. That's where we're going to spend our time this morning. As you're doing so, I want to set up one other thing for this text. So Psalm 14 is known as a community lament. And what's that mean? That's just a fancy way of saying that this psalm expresses deep sadness on behalf of an entire nation, N not just a sole individual but God's people as a nation. And we think that David was the author of this psalm. So in a way, it is as if David is a mouthpiece or a spokesperson for God's people. And he's describing in this psalm oppression that has been received because of fools, the coming deliverance for those who have been oppressed, and finally, the impending doom that awaits the fool. That's an outline of Psalm 14. So I want to pray, and then we'll jump into the text together. Lord, we're thankful for Your Word. We're thankful for divine moments like this where we can pause and be connected with You, the Eternal, and connected with Your Word that is to be our guide for life. I pray that You would supernaturally open our eyes so that You would see what You have for us, so that we would see what You have for us. God, help us not to be the fool. 
that we see here in the text. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to work our way back through the text. Look at verse 1 again. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, and there is none who does good. So things are pretty positive out of the gate, right? Wouldn't you agree? As we alluded to earlier, the, the fool is not just somebody who is uninformed or just lacks knowledge about a particular subject. A fool is the opposite of that. A fool is somebody who has been introduced to the truth, and with a smile on their face, they choose not to do what is right, but they go headlong into what is wrong. And, and you have to stop and ask yourself, okay, if somebody is presented with the truth and they reject it and cling to what is not the truth, why would they do that? Because they're a fool, because of sin, because sin is enticing. That's a fool. And Scripture teaches us that any person who does not believe in God is a fool. And they're fools because everything around them points towards God. I think of texts like Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that read this way, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can see clearly His invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature, so that they have no excuse for not knowing God. Humans, humankind, we are without excuse. And yet, the fool of Psalm 14 says in his heart, there is no God. It's interesting that phrase, or that sentence, there is no God, this is bold. It's a total rejection. And that phrase, there is, is actually added to the text so that it makes more sense to us in English. How this literally reads in the Hebrew is, no God. This is a bold declaration. No God. No God for me. No God. Why would the, the fool say this? Again, it comes to sin. He's saying there is no God because he wants to live the way that he wants to live. He, he wants to revel in corruption. He wants to indulge in abomination. And, and this makes total sense, right? When God is taken out of the picture, morality and accountability are taken out of the picture. Why would the fool say there is no God? Because the fool wants to do what he wants to do. He wants no accountability. He wants no rules and standards. And because God is the foundation of all rules and standards, everything about God is offensive to the fool. God is sovereign, He knows all, He has all power, but the fool is powerless. God is holy and perfect, and the fool is sinful. God is all-knowing, and the fool is foolish. And in the absence of these rules and standards, a fool will relentlessly pursue self-gratification and depravity. Here in verse 1, the fool has spoken. In verses 2 and 3, we get to hear God's perspective. Now, look, look at the text. Look at verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even 
one. Do you see the irony in verse 2? I'll read it again. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man. This phrase, the Lord looks down, it creates this image of God the Almighty residing in heaven, looking down on the foolishness of man. I think this imagery is similar to that in the Tower of Babel. You remember that story from early in Genesis where they're building this giant structure, making their way towards the heavens because they believe that they are awesome. They're trying to be like God. And what does the text say? It says that the Lord went down to see their progress. Here they are thinking that they are on top of the world, literally. But God has to come down to see what they've done. So the Lord looks down from heaven at the children of man, which is a phrase meaning all of humankind. And what does he see? Nothing good, right? Nobody gets it. Nobody understands. Nobody seeks after him. We we read verse 1 and verse 2, and and we're probably thinking like, wow, these fools are messed up. Like they've got problems. They're corrupt. They're doing terrible things. And that would be right and true for us to think in those ways because that's proper Bible study, right? We're reading about these people who were alive in that day. Here's the deal, though. Even though these verses are about these people, these verses are also about us. This text is all-inclusive. It implicates all. We are without excuse. Look at how it reads. All have turned aside. None do good, not even one. This is pretty clear. This is total rebellion for all of humankind. So we have no right to accuse those in Psalm 14 and point the finger. We are a part of the children of man, and from God's holy perspective, all of us are fools and in need of a Savior. And really, I mean, you, you pause and you think about that. When we're honest with ourselves, this isn't hard to believe, right? Like if, if you just look at the world and what's going on today, it's not difficult to see that this place has fallen. It's not hard to see that the world is dark. I'll give you a couple examples, okay? So today, grown men pretend to be women and demand that everyone participate in their delusion. Yesterday, downtown Springfield. I read about a man a couple years ago who tried to sue the state. This father tried to sue the state of New York because they would not allow him to marry his own biological daughter. Self-gratification is rampant. The, the enthroning of self, trying to remove God from his throne and, and put self on the throne, it's pervasive. And again, we are so quick to rightly point the finger at situations like that and say that's wrong. And, and, and we are right in doing so. Here's the deal, though. We have to remember that this verse says all have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. We are guilty. All are guilty and in need of redemption. God continues with his accusations in verse 4. It reads, Have they no knowledge, talking about the fools, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? 
This question here almost serves as an accusation to the people, and, and I think it's meant to be met with a resounding yes, they have no knowledge, because that's the question, right? Do the fools have any knowledge? Mm -mm. They are without it. The, the introduction of bread here is, is really interesting. So if, if you think about bread in that ancient Near Eastern culture, it was a very common and routine and mundane thing in David's day to eat some bread. They probably had it with every meal. It was a staple for them. So there's a word picture going on here in this verse. These evildoers, for them, bringing harm to God's people was as common and as ordinary as eating a piece of bread. Doing evil for them was like taking a drink of water, eating a piece of bread. David, again, who we think was the author of this psalm, he had personal experience with this. Think about King Saul and his multiple attempts to try and kill David. You remember David was seen as a threat to Saul's position as king, even though Saul anointed him to one day be king. It's like he had amnesia. Because of Saul's wickedness, David had to live as a fugitive, constantly on the run, hiding in the wilderness for years. David knew what it was like to be oppressed by a fool. But again, this psalm is a community lament, right? This isn't David expressing what he's been through. He's expressing what God's people have gone through. They too knew what it was like to be oppressed by fools in their lifetime and the lifetimes of those before them. Their rulers, the ones who were tasked with pr protecting them, often handed them over to their enemies, and it led to this downward cycle of oppression and suffering, oppression and suffering, oppression and suffering. Up until this point, first four verses here, the psalm has been pretty ugly. Here's the good news, though. Wickedness does not reign in the economy of God. We see hope in verse 5. It reads, There they are in great terror. Who's that? The fool. There they are in great tower, terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. And then verse 6. You would shame the plans of the poor, again talking about the fool, but the Lord is his refuge. The Lord is a refuge for those who have been afflicted. You see, the mood switches here for the fool. No longer is he like bold and, and puffed up in his sinfulness. Verse 5 says he's filled with dread. He is in terror because he finally realizes that those that he has been persecuting actually have God on their side. He's with them. He's helping them. Well, I, I came across a quote in one of the commentaries as I was preparing for this sermon, and, and it really it stopped me dead in my tracks. I want to read it to you, okay? It says this, Denying God and living a life away from Him will ultimately lead to a confrontation with Him. I'll, I'll read it again. Denying God and living a life away from Him will ultimately lead to a confrontation with him. I think it's good because of the irony, right? Those who run from God, like Jonah, eventually find themselves face to face with God. And then verse 6 here, shockingly, almost blatantly, in verse 6, the fool still tries to shame the poor, to shame the righteous. But again, what does the text say? The text says that the Lord is a refuge 
for those who are mistreated. Despite what happens to the poor, the Lord is their shelter, and He will defeat evildoers. Now, I read this, and, and I think it's a fair question to ask, okay, how is the Lord a refuge to His people in Psalm 14? Well, to answer that specific question, we have to say we aren't given concrete examples, right? That the text doesn't elaborate on how the Lord might be a refuge for His people. But I think if we look at Scripture as a whole, I've come up with two. I think there are many, but I've come up with two examples how I think the Lord could be a refuge for His people in a situation like this. Okay? I'll give you a couple examples. Number one is this. I think one way could be by stirring up generosity among those who have more so that they might help those who are poor. The Bible is clear, right, about the importance of taking care of the poor, showing compassion, and sharing what we have. And so it's not hard to imagine that the Lord might have touched the hearts of individuals who were better off so that they might help those who have less, nudging them to give a hand. And by that act of kindness, the Lord's refuge for the poor could have been made possible. The other example I thought of is through the Lord building a sense of community among the poor believers. The Bible talks a lot about how we need to come together, support each other, and offer encouragement, and I think it's totally possible that the Lord created opportunities for those struggling believers to connect, to share their struggles with one another, and lift one another up. And I think through the meaningful interactions like that, they would have found comfort, encouragement, and reassurance because they weren't alone in their hardships. And, and, and I believe these two examples to be true because we see them all throughout Scripture, but I also believe them to be true because of personal experience. How often have you been given great relief because of the generosity of another? How often have you found refuge because of the companionship of another? because another came alongside you who had gone through what you had went through or had previously experienced it, and they come alongside you and they say, I know exactly what it's like to be in your shoes. I walked it, and I'm here for you. That is an instant connection in the family of God. The Lord is a refuge, and He often provides refuge for His people through His people. Hope continues to build in verse 7. It reads, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. I think this is a, a prayer for restoration. And really, I think it's a twofold prayer. A prayer for earthly restoration and a prayer for heavenly restoration. I think the people here are looking forward to an earthly day when they would no longer be mistreated by corrupt fools. And then when it comes to heavenly things with the reference to Zion, I think they were looking forward to a heavenly restoration, a spiritual restoration, a day when all wrong would be made right. I think that's what verse 7 is talking about. This psalm started in a very dark place. But thanks be to God that it ends in a very hopeful place. And in, in summary of these seven verses, I want to take two truths and lay them before you. And the first one is this. God's salvation is coming to the righteous who have been afflicted. 
God's salvation is coming to the righteous who have been afflicted. You, you see glimpses of this in verses 5, 6, and 7. He is with those who suffer. He is a refuge. He will bring salvation. Here's the reality, though. Scripture does not guarantee that the relief God brings will happen here on earth. We are not given that. Believers will face challenges. Our world is dark, and it is plagued by the presence of evil. We will encounter devastating realities like cancer, sickness, and death, and we will experience deeply painful realities like molestation, murder, divorce, theft, lying, adultery. And yet, we know that we can trust God because ultimately, His goodness will reign and restoration will come. So in our moments of affliction, we are to take heart because we know that true salvation is coming. And we can remind ourselves of this salvation when we are worshiping together in church, when we spend time in our Bible, when we pray, whenever we are with other believers. It brings us hope. And as we hold on to this first promise, we cannot forget the inevitable reckoning that is coming for the fool. And that's the second truth. God's judgment is coming for the unrighteous fool who afflicts. This psalm, Psalm 14, it is bold. The fool claims that God does not exist because he wants to forge ahead in his wickedness and depravity. He tramples on the poor. He, he crunches them in his teeth with the same casualness that he crunches fresh bread. And it's this blindness that prevents him from seeing that shame is around the corner and that terror is knocking at his door. The fool fails to see that judgment and punishment will be his inescapable companions forever. And yet, praise be to God, there is good news for the fool, and it's good news for us because all of us are the fool. Proverbs 2, 6 and 7 read this way, God can make you wise. The text reads this way, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. God has made a way for us to be wise through Christ. You see, we're all fools, right? We're all sinners. We deserve punishment for our crimes. But instead of punishing us, God sent His Son, Jesus, to absorb God's wrath on our behalf. Jesus was a perfect and sinless sacrifice for us. And as a result of that sacrifice, when God looks at us, He doesn't see our sinfulness. He doesn't see our foolishness. He sees Jesus' perfection. And this incredible act of love has made a way for us to be restored into a right relationship with God. May we, those who are fools, be made wise by God and turn to Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your word. It opens our eyes. This psalm teaches us that there is a part of us that doesn't want you to be real 
Because if you are real, you are in charge. And our sinful nature dictates that we would rather be masters of ourselves. And God, because this is true of all of us, we are asking that you would supernaturally increase our faith through your word, through your spirit, and through believers around us. Transform us so that we might overcome our foolishness. In Jesus' name, amen.